0: On this week's episode of Bet the Process, we have a very special episode where I put on my host shoes by myself, my big boy host shoes, and Jeff is our guest. And we go over the history of Jeff as a blackjack player, famous author, mingler with celebrities. I'm not sure that's proper English. And we discuss the lessons Jeff has learned in blackjack and what they tell us about probability in other situations. And it's a great podcast, so I hope you listen. And with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process, welcome to the podcast, bet the process, it's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense, if you came just for pics you're in the wrong place, find a town with the narrative to make a strong case, instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey body rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system, that break down the data analytically driven, media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The welcome to this episode of Bet the Process, and this is a very special one because I am hosting by myself and I have a guest, a guest that you all know. For those of you who don't know, Jeff Ma is the real-life inspiration for the book *Bring Down the House in the hit movie 21, where he's portrayed as a white guy to the chagrin of the Asian community. So Jeff, let's be fair. Uh, your alias in, in the book Bringing Down the House was Kevin Lewis, which isn't exactly an Asian name. So anyway, after working as an options trader, Jeff has been in the startup world for nearly two decades He's founded or co-founded three different startups that he sold. He's an accomplished speaker, better even than Serena Williams, and was ESPN's first ever predictive analytics expert. After stint working at Twitter, their VP of analytics and data science, he left and is now a vice president of products and analytics at Duetto, which I don't know much about. It's involved with the hotel industry, but I'm hoping Jeff's going to enlighten us later about that. I feel weird saying this since you're normally the co-host, but welcome, Jeff. Glad to have you.
1: Thanks, Rufus. I'm glad to be here with you. And you're in a closet, so I hear. I'm
0: I'm still in a closet, and I'm not coming out of that closet. It gets better sound quality, even though I don't have a good microphone. So, Jeff, I've known you for... Wait, can I years. comment on a
1: few things? Can I comment on a few things from your intro? One, yeah. the Kevin Lewis thing. No, when Ben was writing Bring Down the House, it was weird because... Neither of us knew that the book was going to become as big as it was, and you just had no idea. So I I actually asked him to change my name, and he, you know, he kind of decided to anglicize it. But I did ask him to change my name. My middle name is Kevin, so there is some reality there. But that's that's how the name Kevin Lewis came out. Anyways, go ahead. So
0: so what about Ben Campbell? Where did that come from? Why why didn't they just keep Kevin Lewis? Because Ben Campbell, I think there was like some twenty one.
1: There was some character or some person named Kevin Lewis that they have felt like Kevin Lewis wasn't going to work as a name. I, I have no idea how these things work. I mean, Hollywood is like the silliest place in the world. And, and this whole process was sort of ridiculous. But yeah, they did change the name again for you know, who knows why. And but they did.
0: That's funny. There was some Kevin Lewis who was a producer that got mad about it. So so Jeff, I've I've known you for six or seven years. I've never seen you run a regression. I've never seen any of your models. And you don't have a documented blackjack record that you posted to Twitter. I don't see any, I don't even see any blackjack videos, which are apparently now a big thing. But but I fundamentally fundamentally believe that, And actually, no, I I know that you, Jeff, understand how to think the right way. You think like a scientist. You think probabilistically. You understand what you control, can control, and what you can't. And I, I really believe that people that gamble for a living or intimately deal with probability every day understand randomness better than anyone else because the feedback they, or should I say we, get. We make predictions, we get feedback. It's kind of like learning a language. We learn how to understand uncertainty and we get practice at it and it shapes our worldview. And in your book, Jeff, uh, The House Advantage, you describe statistics and probability as a religion for you. It, It shapes the way you view the world. So you studied engineering in college, which is less about probability and more about precision. Did you always think probabilistically, or was that something that arose from your blackjack days?
1: I think it it definitely, the blackjack stuff definitely helped. I always liked to play poker. I went to a prep school. I went away to school when I was 13 years old, which I think just shows that maybe my parents didn't love me very much. And it was a boarding school. And in that time, that's when I started playing poker for the first time. And, you know, whatever you think about poker, I mean, it did make me really think a little bit about probability. And then, you know, certainly at MIT, I took some statistics and probability classes, and I found them to be interesting, and I found myself to 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 enjoy them. So I, I think like, at a young age, I had like an interest in it. Certainly engineering, what it teaches you to do is is think is, is kind of have a problem solving framework. It's interesting that you talk about it teaching you precision but i think it just teaches you how to solve problems and there's a lot of math and probability i mean i think i've always liked math and math always makes sense but i don't know like the probability thing like i think it came from blackjack And, and then a lot of i think my love of probability came later when i was Really starting to meet people in this world, and I just enjoyed people that thought the same way that I did. Like if I go to a speech at an event, and people come up to me afterwards, and I can talk to them, and and some of these people I talk to obviously are just way more you know accomplished and smarter and whatever. But my gift has always been to basically be able to take the stuff and distill it, like and make it simple and, and explain it. And I think you know you see that with you and I on the podcast. Like you are you know, often going into some really complex explanation of something. And a lot of times I feel like I'm able to bring it up a level and help you articulate it in a way that makes a lot more sense to people. And so, you know, like what you said is interesting, right? Like you've never seen me run a model or anything like that. And and that's never going to be my strength. My strength is going to be working with the people that run these complicated models and giving them input and helping them sell those models into people and and helping um, them drive business value with those types of models.
0: So it sounds like... I mean, you weren't really thinking about this stuff that much while you were actually playing blackjack. At least, not originally. It was more afterwards that, I mean, the lessons were gleaned from it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think, I think that you know, during the blackjack time, there's definitely a lot of, a, a lot of, I, I do. You're right. I mean, I do think a lot of this was sort of like thought about after the fact, and and the blackjack stuff was a system that you learn, and it's sort of like very mechanical almost and you know you're almost like a machine but there were things that we did in blackjack i think that made me think a little bit about where to get edges and some of those things are like things that we did around shuffle tracking or you know like tr- tracking packets of cards from one shuffle to the next or things we did around trying to to cut and like trying to cut yourself an ace and things like that these are advanced games that you learn to do later on in blackjack and they they are things that are a little bit more of sort of ingenuity, and I, maybe not really like thinking probabilistically. But actually, I think, I think the thinking probabilistically thing is something that, that, you know, you get to when you have to deal with the negative feedback of situations, i.e. like losing. Like we talk about this all the time. When you lose, you can't think from a results standpoint. You have to think from a process standpoint. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to go crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I always say process over outcome, unless the outcome is good, in which case, <laughs> the outcome over process yeah continue
1: no, no no i i was pretty much done i mean I, I think i think that the the nature is the nature of um this stuff is is very hard um i think that the you know like when when you lose um in blackjack it's there's a big you know there's a big desire to to i think i think to deal with a lot of the stuff that we dealt with i e big losses and you know, ridiculous losing streaks that you have when you have such a small edge, um, in order to, to deal with that, you have to start thinking probabilistically. So I think, I think that it was like almost like my coping mechanism.
0: That makes sense. Well, so I have to ask then, what was your biggest loss and biggest gain for that matter?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you, you've mentioned this on Twitter. My biggest loss is the story that I tell in that, in that book. And, um, you know, you may not believe this, but I do really believe the exact hands that we that I had at that time, and it's such a stark moment in my blackjack career. Basically, I played two hands of blackjack and at Caesar's Palace and bet ten thousand on each hand, and get an eleven on one and a pair of nines on the other, and basically end up doubling and splitting and get fifty thousand dollars on table, and the dealer makes a backdoor twenty one. The next hand, the math calls for me now to, to actually bet three hands of $10,000 because the the odds have gone up so much and $10,000 is the actual limit at that table at Caesars. And so I spread to three hands of 10000 To be honest, I can't remember whether I spread because... I think the, the, the count said I should spread. And also, I think I thought it was the last hand of the shoe. So when it's the last hand of the shoe and you have a big advantage, you try to spread to as many hands as you can because you want to just maximize the amount of money that you have on the table and, and reduce your variance. And so I did that and I had three hands of 10000 and then the dealer had a six again. And I basically ended up splitting and I ended up doubling two hands, doubling a nine against a six and doubling a soft 15 against the six. And ended up with $19, 19 19 $50,000 on the table. And the dealer again um, made a backdoor 21. And, you know, I remember this so well. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was like this very defining moment for me. Because when that happens to you, you want to quit. Like, you don't want to play blackjack anymore. You don't, you know, you don't, you're like, Questioning anything that happens, even though it's such a small sample size, but it's it's so extreme because you know at that time on a typical weekend, I would be winning you know fifty to seventy thousand dollars, maybe you have a hundred k swing or something like that, but you know like losing a hundred k in two hands was was a really big deal. You know I was twenty one years old, I think I'd only been playing about eight or nine months, and you know I remember that so well. I ended up coming back from that and and that weekend. You know I think, as a team, we did pretty well. We had a weekend where we won over half a million dollars as a team, and we had a weekend where I think we lost close to quarter of a million. Those are probably the two biggest wins and losses. you
0: know I liked what you said in the book about how you know you afterwards you know you you calculated the probability that the dealer could have gotten those twenty ones in those back to back hands. But then you realized that going into those hands, you only had a five or six percent edge and so you know, after after you were dealt, and the dealer was showing you six both hands, or I guess it was a five the second hand, and based on what you had, your edge was a lot greater. But I kind of I think there, there's a parallel of sports betting here, right? And the fact that like when you have a bad beat, you had to have something generally happen good to get yourself in that position. Like your expectation going into a bet was never 98 percent, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the biggest edge that you might ever see on an individual blackjack hand is, you know, if you see a 5% edge, that's really huge. You know, you might, in some real extreme cases, see, you know, 6%, 7%, but generally, like, the overall edge is probably only a couple percent, like, over the, over the long haul of, of playing and the way we played, which was pretty efficient with, you know, the team play that we did, etc.,
0: I think this is a good segue. Um, so blackjack is a closed system with clearly defined rules. It's mathematical. You can model it out explicitly, whereas in sports betting, you have defined, well, the game has defined rules, I should say, um, but you're predicting the behavior of humans playing that game. So it's, it's not a closed system. So how exactly does blackjack help you understand an open system?
1: Um, I don't know if it does. Uh I, I mean I think the the way that it does, and, and so what Rufus is alluding to is actually a very, very interesting point, which is basically that you know blackjack is perfectly closed. It's stable, the game doesn't change, the data doesn't change, rules don't change, the market doesn't change, all the things that cause, you know, non-stationarity in sports betting, it's it's not true in blackjack. And so, you know, it, it's it's a um you know it's it's a very it's a very easy thing to sort of like talk about the way i'm talking about it where there's just this very religious sense of like right and wrong and how you use numbers and how you think about numbers and how you think about probability and whatnot but the reality is that the real world isn't like that and so the question of like whether and i think the the way that it helps you do that is that you can contrast all these things to Blackjack, and that makes you kind of understand you know where you might fall short, where you might be able to gain edge, all that both of those because if you contrast things to Blackjack, you can kind of very clearly see you know where the the holes in the system are sort of does that make sense? that does make sense
0: I mean I guess in casino games you have Blackjack and Roulette, which are both games that are. Well, I guess everything in a casino is a closed system, right? But, but you reference roulette—that's something that's truly random and independent. Well, poker's I mean, poker's well, like,
1: not a clo poker's not a closed system. No,
0: right? you're right. You're right. I wouldn't call poker a casino game as much. It's played in a casino, but yeah. right, it's definitely not the
1: traditional traditional against the house kind of game for sure.
0: Right, but anyway, roulette is something that's truly random and independent, uh, and. You know I, that that's I think a good example of of something um, of a casino game that's a closed system and truly random independent. But what if what if we have data generated by some process that could be random but could be not random? Uh, so such as I know we've talked about this: the Patriots' first quarter scoring tendencies in Super Bowls, right? Bill Belichick has scored a total of three points in Super Bowls in what is it like nine Super Bowls? So. So something like that is difficult to evaluate. And in your book, you quote a trend that from 1994 to 2006 in the NFL, teams that had won less than 10% of their games were coming off a loss, playing at home, and an underdog of seven and a half or more points were 26 and five against the spread. You say that when evaluating that, we should determine whether there's enough, quote, qualitative support to justify something like this being non-random. But how do you determine something like that? And is there an issue with coming up with an explanation after the fact? And what about all the possible theories that you could test that don't end up showing it, any evidence of non-randomness? So you could have had all these other narratives that you tested that didn't show it. So, I mean, this is a sports betting example, I know. But in general, how can we know whether we should believe data in an open system when you've said it yourself? In some cases, the conclusions that data can prove show or
1: counterintuitive yeah it's a it's a good question and i think that it's it's something that people ask me actually a lot when i give speeches they say like hey you know like how do you how do you cope with the differences here etc um and i don't know if i have a great answer beyond saying that like you have to constantly be reevaluating and have to figure out ways to get quick feedback loops. So a lot of times in sports betting, people talk about when you build a model, don't work, don't, you don't need to necessarily wait to see results. You can look at just whether you're beating closing line value or what, you know, how, how it is versus the market. That's a quick feedback loop. Um, you know, like obviously backtesting things and really backtesting things well can can be a way that that you can do it. Um, but you know, like when you talk about some of these trends and things like that, I mean, you know, I think my thinking, to be honest, like that book I wrote was I wrote it a lot a, a while ago, right? And yeah, I do think I do think my thinking has evolved quite a bit, and it, it evolved a lot because of just these tremendously smart people that I worked with when I worked at Twitter um and you know there was a, a woman that I worked with there um who I'm still close with and she's was a you know PhD in econ from uh MIT and and um her name is Juliana Pascu and she she's like amazingly brilliant and not not only is she brilliant but she's just brilliant in how she like thinks about The world and and sort of like all of these types of of problems that you know data can and cannot solve and you know that like she's like the one that sort of made me become you know like I have a son named James and I would love for James to study economics like I would love for him to be end up being like a PhD in economics and then going out in the world and, and figuring out ways that you can apply that in the real world I have this like almost like envy of people that really understand economics in sort of the modern way not necessarily just econometrics but you know economics and and how incredibly you know thoughtful um people are in terms of like you know understanding um systems and things like that
0: so macroeconomics
1: yeah yeah i think more macro um you're an economist so we can we can i'm I'm
0: not an economist i made (laughs) in economics there's a very clear difference okay and i don't know if anybody understands macroeconomics because i mean to your point it's it's an open system and it's so open that i I think at least that it is i mean it's hard to isolate the impact of any one thing because there's so many moving parts would you agree
1: yeah, I mean that's why it's interesting, right? That's why that's yeah. why like it's interesting in terms of the way they have to I mean yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's like the ultimate open system and so figuring out how to solve for these things is just incredibly interesting um when you you know have to do experiments or where you can't even do experiments like just just some of the work that I've seen that we did at Twitter, and then even just interviewing people from other companies like Netflix and things like that—the type of things that they have to try to understand. Um, you know, that's just, they're incredibly interesting.
0: You know, Jeff, reading your book, which I started doing today, and I've read 150 pages of it. So, nice. I, you know, nice. So, I'm so probably gonna you're happy are that, that are-
1: you're happy that there's so many pictures in it, then.
0: For sure. You know, I'm probably going to ask you questions that are answered in the last 50 pages of the book. So if that's the case, please don't give me or the reader any spoilers. But it, it was interesting, as you said, how you, how your thinking has evolved. I mean, I, I was shocked, frankly, when in the first chapter, you talked about how trend, ana- like trend analysis was an important part for any handicapper. I mean, I, I think that you know, obviously, this book was written years ago, but his your his your thinking on on that kind of evolved on these sort of
1: yeah, of of course, just, it's, of course, it's evolved and and I think you know one of the things like and in that chapter I talk a lot about Dr. Bob, right? And um, one of the things that I found interesting about Dr. Bob's approach and, and you and I have kind of talked about this is this whole idea that you know he does these he does a model which is you know really taking into account like the the two teams and Whatnot. And then he does this trend analysis and then uses that trend analysis to, to see basically, you know, what's not incorporated in his model. Now, you would say, like, if it's that, that trend analysis, if there's something in there, it should be incorporated into the model independent of the trend analysis. Um, but I think at that time, like, you know, I was pretty convinced that he was on to something because... You know he would had success and and you know Bob, Dr. Bob is, is smart. When you talk to him, he he know you know he has like a very convincing way of, of looking at things. Um, and I don't know if you know. I think maybe in in the book, like you know, maybe if I write another edition of it, I'll take that part out. But I don't know if I was necessarily saying, and I'll have to reread this to see what what exactly I was saying. But I don't know if I'm saying that trend analysis is important as so much as like trying to model things that aren't necessarily just in the numbers of one team versus the other team. Um, You know, like in terms of their power ratings, there are other things that need to go into that model besides just the power ratings.
0: That's true. So, so here's, so with that trend that was coded before where you said, uh, I'll say it again, uh, teams that have won less than 10% of their games, this is an NFL. They're coming off a loss, playing at home, and an underdog of seven and a half or more points, that trend, you also mentioned that there was a potential narrative behind it. Um, I don't know if you remember the narrative, but you basically said that you have basically teams that were winless or close to winless, and the coming off a loss means that they hadn't just won their first game or something. It wasn't a team that had just gone to one and ten. They're playing at home, so they're going to try harder, and they're an underdog of seven and a half or more points, meaning – So that they might be overlooked by the opponent. So the question is: Are those things that could be factored into a model? And would you still stand by the fact that they are things? uh, No, I'm not going to ask you that. But do you think that they could be incorporated into a model fundamentally, or are those just only technical things?
1: Um, I, I think it could be factored into a model, right? But I do think like this sort of arbitrary I mean like I think what you're getting at and I think I think you're accurately sort of attacking what I wrote in that part, which is like that this is in some respects the things that that you know we now make fun of, which is just this idea of sort of these arbitrary endpoints or these arbitrary buckets and whatnot. Um, and it is potentially very dangerous to you know look at something like that and use that as a as a uh, you know as an important measure. I think really what it comes down to and and maybe like how you and I um maybe how you and I have evolved or whether we you know what would be interesting to think about is are there is there ever a time when you would see a trend and you would take that into account like if you didn't have it built into your model if there was a trend that was like so convincing, both from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint, or would you always just choose to just ignore it? That that would be me throwing that question back at you.
0: So, you know, I, I'll give you a really good example. There's something going on right now in, in betting. And it's this trend that there's these five teams that are covering the first period overs in the NHL at a ridiculous rate. I don't remember the teams exactly. I can look this up but it's it's all over the Twitter sphere. Vion's talking about it a lot. I saw Dave Tooley tweet about it we're We're talking like forty two and fifteen and whatever and and it keeps going over and apparently, there are books that are now booking rather than moving the number from like for example, I think one and a half is the standard first period total rather than moving that to two. They're going one and a half like minus two hundred plus but these these teams like keep going over so. Well, what do you think about that particular trend?
1: Um, I mean, I don't, I just would think that like the market's going to adjust so much to something like that, that I just, I wouldn't bet it. Like, you know, I, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very wary of being the last person holding the bag and, you know, or the bottom of the Ponzi scheme or the pyramid scheme or whatever. Like I'm, I'm not going to be the one that jumps onto something, you know, after it's already been factored into a a market and factored into a price like um or even not factored. i mean i have no idea like what i I just you know like okay so you know that there's this whole notion right now that um over the last couple years in the nba um the teams that um right because the nba changed to this longer all-star break it's now like seven days and the first quarter unders have come in the first two years. I think they came in at something like 24 and three. And then last year they were only like five and seven or something like that. And then this year so far today they, they went five and one. Um, and there's, there is a narrative there that like these teams are just super rusty and their shooting is, is not good and it impacts their offense more. Um, and our friend, our friend Preston is just bets them blindly. And you really, know, yeah, he does. He has um,
0: fundamentally said, okay. Well, this is what the number would be if we did this normally, without incorporating this.
1: And he literally the
0: seems to, I like, believe,
1: and, I believe he literally bets them blindly. Okay, I
0: mean, because I would think you could see how much the market is incorporating this. Because isn't this yeah, is that the problem can, with all these technical I, analyses?
1: No, no. You, you, you certainly could, right? You certainly could see like what what the adjustment is or whatnot, and 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 see if they're factoring it enough or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I don't, it's hard for me to, to, you know, Preston is, has one of the things that I think makes him a very interesting sports better is that he has, he definitely has theories um, from time to time that he bets. And I don't think he bets them as big as he bets, say like one of his college football games that he sees clear, you know, analytical edge on. I don't think he bets it anywhere as close to that, but he will take shots on things from time to time based on, you know, like certain venues, if he knows that certain venues, like especially in college, these, there's these venues that they play in and like the Sweet 16 and things like that where these uh, arenas are huge and they're just really hard to shoot. And like the first game in these things, it, it tends to be really hard for these guys to shoot. Or in certain venues, the rims are really soft and like the teams, you know, and, and often he'll do this or he'll make some judgments you know, and I, ho- I hope he doesn't get pissed at me for talking about this, but he does it in sm- in small sample sizes, but he uses, you know, he uses that enough to guide him. And, and again, like this is not how he's making his living by doing these types of things, but he is looking at these things and trying to get small edges from them.
0: Well, you have to ask the right questions, right? I mean, I think there's a fine line between asking a question and then also jumping to a conclusion based on a small sample. And I know, uh. To segue back to blackjack you said in in your book you gave an example of um well you, you mentioned how important trust is with the blackjack team and and that's sort of it's the same thing if you're betting with the team in sports betting right you're trusting people with a lot of money and you want to know that they're not going to go and run off with money with your money or skim from the top and you mentioned that there was one guy that it seemed like he continually lost and you wanted to try to determine whether he was skimming money and you tried to do it using the data you basically figured you know you looked at the hands he was in the advantages he you know he had betting based off of this mathematical model card counting and you found that the results were within two standard deviations of normal but does that really tell you whether he cheated or not you know what if he was four standard deviations from normal you, you I think that it tells. I
1: think it tells you the probabilist. Pro- it, it's a probabilistic thing, right? It teaches you. The, it, it gives you a a probability of of um, or at least guy. It, I don't know. It's maybe like a gut check a little bit. Well, Jeff, it, what,
0: what if you see thirteen straight reds, uh, you know, on a on a roulette table? Do you say this roulette table is rigged?
1: I mean, Even though at the odds that are at, one in
0: sixteen thousand
1: at some at some point you might like there were to be honest there were there was there was a place in in uh Chicago called the Grand Victoria and this was like it was a uh, it's in Elgin Illinois and you know it's like about 45 minutes uh, from Chicago and when they opened they had like this impossibly perfect blackjack situation for us they had probably 40 tables All on one floor of the actual um and they all had two thousand dollar limits which you know at a small place like that was great and and they took the action and and since the 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 floor was like completely flat meaning like you didn't have to go to a different area you could see people so we could go in there with like four or five team people that were all at tables counting the cards and they could signal to me and i would go in and um and i would be able to bet and we we would play for hours on end there and they just they were just clueless they just didn't think about card counters and it probably helped matters that we lost for a long time there and we actually like all Mm -hmm. were basically like hey we are losing at this rate that like we don't really believe like they i wonder if they're cheating so that's like literally what we we thought to Uh ourselves so we went we went back in And we, for like two or three hours, we all just counted tables and we counted them down because if you count enough tables, you can basically tell, like if, if, if all the time the count is ending relatively high, you know, there's a chance that maybe they are, you know, taking, uh, having some extra, you know, sixes in there, extra fives in there, like cards that are great for the dealer and bad for the player, or maybe they're taking some tens out or something like that. Um, and we would go and we went and counted and we we found that like literally like everything was normal right and so um I don't know like i I think i I understand your point but I think that you know if you're data driven you try to figure out ways to sort of like understand things from a data standpoint and and maybe they're maybe they're not they're far from perfect in terms of understanding from a data standpoint but at least they shed a little bit of light
0: well, it sounds like what you're talking about a little bit is a prior too, right? I mean, like the fact is with roulette tables, we assume that they're gonna be fair generally and and I would assume that a blackjack game would be fair, like have you actually ever heard of the casino ever cheating on blackjack like that?
1: No, of course not,
0: never so you're I, mean, I mean it would it would have taken an overwhelming amount of evidence to convince you, right,
1: yeah although you know like i said like not only were we winning or no, sorry not only were we losing we were getting a lot of uh call ins meaning like we were finding a lot of tables that were favorable because they we would see a lot of low cards and it would just seem like the high cards would never come out when we were playing and we would end up losing and so you know that that was that was kind of like the the mindset
0: so taking it back to the example with with the trust and, and with the, the teammate on blackjack, if your let's say his roommate had come to you and say, Hey, um, this guy told me he was taking money from you, and then you saw that he was one and a half standard deviations lower than he should have been, would that have impacted your thought process on how to interpret those numbers?
1: Uh it's a good question. You know, like in one case is the um in one case you're interpreting the exact same results in a different way and um i don't know like one and a half standard deviations just doesn't seem like very much to me in terms of like a a, uh you know an occurrence or the of happening so i don't know if i would have interpreted it differently i mean i would have I I think that those numbers, you know, like if it were four standard deviations, it'd be different, but, you know, two standard deviations seem well within the rhyme of reason. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't, wait, how about, I mean, how about this? Like, Rufus, you, when you have a bad streak, like you had a bad streak in a sport this year, when that happens, like, how do you evaluate that? Are are you going to, like, don't you think, like, there's times where you can evaluate results and you'd be like, okay, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. This has just been, a really concentrated amount of badness, which is making me think it's worse than it really is.
0: Right. I mean, in your book, you talk about Dr. Bob going through a five and 32 streak. Right. And he said afterwards that he still thinks he has a 56% win rate long term. And I think I'm sure in his write-up, he talked about how he had bad turnover luck or something. Right.
1: (laughs) I mean, I feel like you're making fun of Dr. Bob now.
0: No, 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 but it, but it isn't like, I am saying like, you know, that, yeah, I mean, you, I, I do think that when you are losing, you tend to sort of evaluate your your methodology a lot more than when you're winning. When you're winning, you're just happy to keep going on doing what you're doing, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're losing, you're definitely trying to like look for reasons that you're losing, and you're you know, and the the Bob example is a great example, and and in a lot of ways. I was trying to highlight so that's all in this sort of chapter which is about the religion what I call the religion of statistics and like so much of that what the Bob chapter is to is to really like sort of articulate Bob's you know like his nuanced sort of like ridiculous confidence that he has which is like a a big reason um, I think that he's been successful over time in everything because he just has this like uh, incredible confidence in himself and when he was down and he lost five, you know, he lost, he was five and 32. Like he still believed in what he was doing and it, he didn't let that short term result sway him. Now I've, I've, you know, given him crap before, or I, I think that I've, I've talked about this before when I used to look at his write-ups and I, and, and I don't want to like disparage Bob anymore. Like, cause he obviously did not appreciate when we talked about him, you know, in our first season, but like, there was a time I remember when he he had a write up that I read and I read the write up and with all the numbers and everything I was like man I don't understand why he's not playing this and I like I think I emailed him and he was basically like well you know I've lost like six in a row so I want the play to be stronger for it to be an official play so I, it's not my seventh loss so but normally it would be a play and I was just like okay that's kind of weird so you you know like you for me, like I definitely evaluate people's approaches much more now. And, you know, like, again, like my thinking has definitely evolved. So that five and 32 thing was interesting because you posted it on Twitter and there was a whole thing, um, on Twitter where people were just kind of commenting about it. And their comments were pretty interesting. Like the idea that like, he's not respecting the market at all. Like he's not thinking about because his notion that like he would expect to win at the exact same win percentage that he's always won. I don't think he has like a full appreciation of you know market efficiencies and non-stationarity and sports betting, etc. Yeah,
0: I think that's fair. Do, do you think that that five and thirty-two made it into a, one of these trends for him? Like every time it's you know two thousand seven mm-hmm. between whatever, you know, it's a strong play to fade, Doctor Bob.
1: <laughs> I think you're joking. So I don't think I'm yeah, answering yeah.
0: that. Okay. Okay. So um, back on track. Do you, So we're talking about interpreting, using numbers to sort of make judgments on things that are random or not random. And I'm curious with, you know, I don't know if you've got a chance to read this article on ESPN that came out earlier this week about Tim Donahue. It was written by Scott Eden. It was a fantastic article, very long, but fantastic. Um, and it was, it sort of shed a lot of light on on the Tim Donahue story and, and, and what actually was going on. And so do you think we can use sports betting data to effectively catch cheats like Tim Donahue?
1: Um, I mean, it depends what you mean by sports betting data. But yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I'm, I'm uh, moderating this panel um, at Sloan um, on sports betting, and the people on the panel are to be one person from Sport Radar, one person from Perform, one person from William Hill, and one person from FanDuel, and then Doug from ESPN. Um, Doug. And, what's that?
0: <laughs> like, and then Doug.
1: Well, we love Doug personally. Yeah. I think we all do, but I don't know if we consider him to be the sharpest tool in the shed as it comes as it pertains to sports betting. So, um, hopefully, he's listening to this, and and he says something to me when I see him in Boston because that'll prove that he listens to me. But, um, I mean, Doug's a very talented media person, I think. And he you know, has a much more familiar area of sports betting than I would say most media people, but I definitely would not call him a sharp. Um, he kind of represents the everyman <laughs> to some degree. Uh, anyways, but one of the things today in, in prepping for the panel, I was talking to the guy from Sport Radar and just talking a little bit about, you know, the, the notion of all the sort of like integrity stuff they do and, and looking for patterns and all that kind of stuff. And as he was telling me this, I was wondering to myself, I'm like, how much is this like people like instilling fear in you and then selling you insurance with that fear? Um, IE like, because like, you know, they're, and basically, in the major sports, really, there hasn't been much, very many scandals, right? Like the scandals happen have happened in like tennis, and then he was saying that there's been many more scandals in like minor league sports and things like that, maybe like European basketball or whatever. Um, so I mean, well, I don't know, you, you, you. Sorry. Go ahead. No,
0: I was just sorry. I was sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say that in those minor sports. There's, you know, it's harder to get down a lot of money without leaving a a real footprint, right? So yeah. if if there was if there was match fixing in one of the major sports, it would be much harder to detect.
1: Yeah, you you would certainly think so. And um, well, I mean, you you did this kind of work at at LBSC, right? So like, you tell me, right. it, like, realistically, is is there is this concept of you know integrity fees or sorry and the ability to basically like analyze this data um, that like sport radar wants to make a product and i'm sure many other people are going to try to make it. Is, is there is there validity to that analysis
0: well you know when i was at lvsc we i looked at the games that suppose that all the games that donahue repped that one season uh, and doing an analysis that i really was not very rigorous at all um, found some patterns and we sent it to the NBA and actually LVSC got the NBA as a client I think because the NBA wanted to be able to say hey we hired somebody that is monitoring the line moves I don't think we we literally just sent them reports on like how many moves were there on this game there wasn't any real analysis on it but I, I still I mean when I read that article Jeff I kind of thought like well this stuff was going on for years before and if people hadn't started betting more and more and more and people hadn't, you know, gotten greedy and, and people hadn't talked, nobody would have found out.
1: Right. But I think one of the things that is interesting though, is, is if you have a situation where there is a lot more money being put into a, a system, like maybe, maybe it gets uncovered quicker.
0: Yeah. I mean, but are, are we going to see plenty of patterns that are really much a do about nothing? I mean, you know, speaking of Dr. Bob, didn't they think, you know, there was some, like, you know, Iranian terrorist plot moving the market because the NFL lines were moving three points? I read this article about Dr. Bob. I don't know if you heard of it. but no. back Wait, in, in, like, <laughs> exactly like Exactly. Like, because he went, like, 50 – it was, like, some crazy record of, like, six, 56 and 20 in a season or something like that, and was moving lines three points. You know, nobody's going to say, oh, there's match-fixing. Or made, I mean people were worried about that though at the time because so, I mean, like, what is happening here?
1: There's there's two things that you're talking about, right? One, you're talking about um, look doing analysis to sort of understand, you know, like results and that tie into the game. Like, could you do analysis on like Donahue's betting like patterns in terms of calling fouls and things like that? And I think your point is that in many situations you're going to find some patterns and they may or may not mean anything and probably it's going to be really hard to to use those to determine anything but i do think like if you see very strange betting patterns on certain types of games and, and what i guess maybe what you're saying is that in the really liquid markets it's probably hard to see that anyways um but I guess it's just maybe a peace of mind kind of thing for people. So maybe it is kind of BS. Maybe I should bring that up on the on the on the panel. I'm sure that would interest me to the Sport Radar people of the world.
0: I mean, I guess if you combined the if you combine the sort of betting market movements and if there's any anomalies there, and then cross reference that with any sort of anomalies in the officiating in those games. And then invest and then tapped that referee's phones or something and got on to all his encrypted messages. But I I feel like it's still only circumstantial evidence.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I agree.
0: Okay, so in in your book, sorry, I keep going back to the book, but Recency Bias, uh, you say that, that, I mean, actually, you don't say this. I say that tools for statistical analysis and data mining are, are much more readily available than ever right now. You don't have to understand statistics to be able to query a database or even run a regression. Really, Um, you said in your book though that having more information is always better than having less. This was what nine years ago in the book. Do you still agree with that statement? I mean, because at that time we didn't, you know, AI wasn't what it is now. Uh, You know, machine learning wasn't what it is now. Do you still agree with that statement, or do you think the misuse of data is a problem and is it going to be something that
1: gets worse um well no i i agree with that statement i think having more information is always better than having less information but i do think you need to be judicious in the data you use right i'm not just saying like oh just throw everything in a you know machine learning black box model and that's the key like i i'm one of the people that's always talking about you know, science over math when it comes to some of this stuff. And, you know, like for each piece of data that you have, like, and and to loop this into what I do right now, which is working with hotels on understanding like pricing and things like that. There's all sorts of data that people want to use for hotels to be better at pricing, but no one's actually figured out like how they use it. Like, you know, comp set pricing is a perfect, perfect example. Like, people all believe that comp set pricing should be figured into, or a lot of people believe it should be figured into, you know, your, your pricing model. But like, what does that even mean? I mean, should you price below your comp, comp set, set or pricing? above your comp set? What's that?
0: For those of us that don't know, like me, what's comp set pricing? Com
1: set is just your, your, your competitors, like the people that you compare oh. yourself to and you know, like should you price below your comp set or above your comp set? And, and I don't know if there's like really a, you know, a right answer to that necessarily. And and one of the things that I want us to do is do real definitive work on understanding whether you should price, you know, how how you should incorporate comp set data before we just randomly throw it into a, a model. That makes a
0: lot of sense. So there are you, I mean, you're not running the regressions yourself or whatever, but are you basically sort of setting the vision and creating this this culture and these systems and processes that enable this kind of analysis?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so I run product analytics and I run um, a piece of marketing there and you know, what I am doing is, is ideally is, is building a team and pushing them into um, you know, asking the right questions and solving the right things and potentially, you know, building the right products to help, you know, what I believe we can do is really help hoteliers, um be better or more effective at, at how they run their businesses um using data at the core to do that because it's it's pretty it's pretty challenging um to you know to to work in the hotel industry because data is is really hard to get
0: really why is that
1: uh, because the, a lot of these systems are are really old. Um, and there a lot of them are on-premise systems, meaning like the data doesn't go to the cloud. So to get data out of these systems, you need to like put something on-prem that can send you the information and the information is not like nicely formatted or or may not be in a, a, a data format that's easy to understand. You know there's just all these sort of like reasons why the data is hard to get. like when i when I talk a lot about, you know, uh, how to be successful in data analytics. The first one is, is getting good data. And in many industries, getting good data is, is really hard. Um, And and that's one of the things that attracted me to the hotel industry, because there are, there are a bunch of opportunities there to clean things up um, by just really being better at, at even just understanding and accessing data. That
0: makes a lot of sense.
1: Thanks, Rufus. I like to think so. Uh,
0: so, I know we're we're getting short on time here, um, but I wanted to ask you a few... We can do this two questions. parts, because
1: my guess is you have a bunch more questions, because you've only gotten through a couple chapters, and I want to make sure you read the whole book.
0: This is true. <laughs> you don't know this, but I actually... Today, I was, I, I was reading your book in my Uber on the way to the restaurant. Uh, I went out to this restaurant with my girlfriend for dinner, um, and she was late because her Uber was late so i have the re- the book out at the restaurant reading so i i i told the server that she should definitely read it it's a good read after she asked about it
1: <laughs> i was hoping so, that someone like came up to you and was like oh i've read that book i thought there was gonna be like a great punchline to this
0: well no i was in cambridge though so it, it was your stomping grounds
1: it, it that is my stomping grounds
0: uh, i was just hoping i could get a commission for like we like can find this an affiliate fee that's what i want an affiliate fee for referring people to your book <laughs> sorry that was that was completely unintentional humor too
1: that was that was a knock at the the so action network wasn't it
0: no it, yeah. was a, it was a knock at affiliates in general the action <laughs> network doesn't do affiliate marketing right now
1: yeah, but that was the hey. thing that they've been getting crap. their old CEO Noah was getting crap for you saw the action network got like a lot of press today, right? Because they got this, yeah, the work, fir- this big, big round of funding. So they did. Their CEO Patrick Keane was on C N B C Squawk Box, I believe. Yeah? Which is pretty is pretty, that- pretty pretty damn impressive, I have to say, <laughs> to be on to be on CNBC talking about this kind of stuff. So
0: Well aren't they kind of trying to be the C N B C for sports betting? A little bit,
1: well, I think if they are they're they're really not going in the right direction, but um, I do think that that's one kind of piece of branding that they maybe maybe are are shooting for, yeah, yeah, I read that somewhere, so Jeff, everybody like, wants to be the Bloomberg for sports, so the Bloomberg for sports is more the 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 you know the the moniker
0: everybody wants to be the something for something else, like why don't you just want to be? Something new. I want awesome to be the. I want different. to be
1: the Uber for ride sharing. Yeah. Oh wait, that is that is what they are. Anyways, move on.
0: I want to be the Jeff of podcasting.
1: <laughs> so, right. someone that I, makes I'm awkward jokes. About this What's up
0: so, I'm very curious. Back to blackjack. Um, and I've never asked you this, how you were able to avoid detection for so long. I know I know you work in teams and all that, but at the same time, um, do, you, do you think it was a product of the times and, and, and the level of heat at the time? Um, I mean, I'm sure it was a com- – or was it entirely skill, a combination of that? Was it just only playing at a casino for, like, once and then coming
1: back? that same place a year later how was i able to or how was the team able to both so i I mean i think the team was able to there were a bunch of different like reboots of that team and every time they rebooted the team they brought new people in and and whatnot our team did pretty well um By I think some of them had just been luck. It was just the timing of when we started playing because there were just so many new casinos opening at that time. If you think about that, this is like in from nineteen sort of ninety four to two thousand one. There probably were like twenty five different states that started legalized casino gaming in that time. Maybe maybe that's a little high, but there was a lot. Right, there were you know like in eighty nine I think there was only like three states that had legalized um, you know, table gaming. And then now there's close to 40, I think that do. Um, so when you have that, you're going to have a dilution of talent. So there's gonna be a dilution of people that can actually catch card counters. So we probably got lucky on timing. Um, I think we also, um, me particularly, like one of my skills was sort of not, not pushing things. Like, I think that if you push things, meaning like if you play in clear examples when and clear times when the casino knows that you're on to something or suspects you, they'll just start watching you. And once they start watching you, there's no way to fool them, right? Like card counting is a pretty obvious thing. It's not, you know, just from your betting patterns, they're able to see that you're counting cards and you're not going to like bet poorly on purpose to throw them off the scent, right? You, you just don't do that. You know, no, I mean, there's, there's like one or two things that we would do that would sort of like be like slightly negative EV bets um, or close to 50 50 bets. Um, but generally, it's, it's, not, it's not a great idea because your edge isn't very big. And so when you start doing that and you give up, you give up any kind of edge, you know, it's like long term, that's not a, a, a smart um, situation or smart system to do. I mean, just think, if, like, if, just think about it with sports betting if like just think about it just think about the analogy with sports betting, although in sports betting I mean I don't know, like could you intentionally bet some games that you know moved against you, and that would maybe change your signature as a sports better, and that would maybe make people think a little bit differently about you? I don't know
0: that's a good parallel, it really because everybody has a sports a, a signature, right
1: yeah i mean we talked about this one when we when i interviewed ted the the amazing podcast that you had nothing to do with um he talked about that That a lot and you know he's obviously super knowledgeable about this you know having built so much of like what what's happening at penny now um so anyways but yeah and then i think from my standpoint like you asked like how i didn't get caught i think like i was I really would leave places if I felt like there was any sort. I was very good at not pushing it. I think a lot of card counters um, are the opposite. They they push things hard, and and I'm not. I wouldn't even say that my strategy is right, like because maybe it buys me like another trip or whatever. But you know, it might not even buy me very much um, extra opportunity, and I'm giving up opportunity at that moment when I could be playing. You know, so. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question.
0: But you stay out of the Griffin book.
1: I think I'm in Griffin by this point for sure. But yeah, I mean, you, you do try to stay out of Griffin for sure.
0: Which do you want to explain to people that are not familiar with Griffin? What it is?
1: Yeah. Griffin is the Griffin detective agency. It's, it's the, you know, this, this agency, I think it was run by this woman, Beverly Griffin. And, um, they basically, uh, try to track. I mean, not all that what they do is tracking card counters. They actually try to track a lot of uh cheats, real cheats, um, people that like go in and do scams and things like that. And a small portion of what they do is try to track card counters. And um they um, you know, like you once you get in that book, every almost every casino subscribes to that book. And they, you know, your career is more or less pretty quickly over and and this is like literally at those days it was like a book and it was like faxes and things like that because this was before like you would like even just be able to look someone up in a database so um i'm sure now like when the jig's up it's it's really up and quickly
0: well based on uh based on your experience trying to play blackjack at the palms with kate bosworth i guess you probably (laughs) are not welcome to do that right
1: no, I mean, I, th- there's most places that, you know, nowadays when I go to Vegas, and you've been to Vegas with me, like, I don't really try to play blackjack in any of these places because they all they all know me. Like, the only time that I've played blackjack relatively recently was when, you know, not to name drop, but when Simeon Rice came into to Vegas, he wanted to play blackjack with me, and so we decided to go over to Aria and play some blackjack, and I played, like, some $50 blackjack and played for a while and it was you know I, I no one's gonna care if I'm betting like I think the most I ever bet was maybe 200 bucks and no one no one cares I was just going to like because Simeon was like hey I really want to play blackjack with you it'd be fun and I was like okay let's go play it's fun
0: were you card counting and did he want you to card count was that kind of the novel? yeah
1: I was card counting but you know card counting is like a incredibly uninteresting thing like people are like, oh come card count with me and it's like you could play like ten shoes and nothing ever happens, like in terms of getting any increased betting, um, and it's incredibly boring. And then, like, then, uh, then you let's say you go card count and like all of a sudden the count goes up and these guys bet big for like five hands and they get screwed. Then all of a sudden, like, you look like an idiot. So the the take me card counting thing is like a no win situation for the card counter. It it is quite boring.
0: Have you done, did you do any expand into other games? Did you ever do any hole carding?
1: Different. um i didn't really do any hole carding um i assume by hole carding you're talking about like trying to see their whole card
0: yeah with flat it could be blackjack or other casino games where no like sloppy those, dealer. So,
1: so the closest thing that i did to hole carding probably was like the nrs stuff which is non-random shuffling which is when you try to track certain packets of cards from one shuffle to the other, basically like casinos at this time got pretty lazy. And you know, when they, when you think about modeling the business in, in the casino, when you're, when you're shuffling the cards, you're losing money because you're basically, you're paying operational costs, but you're not generating any positive EV for yourself. So you're actually losing money and, uh, and, so they, they, make their, they made their shuffles really simple. And so this is really before there were a lot of shuffle masters in, in, in the world. Um, and so they made their shuffles really simple. And by making them simple and quick, they often made them non-random, meaning like you could track three quarters of a deck or, or small packets of cards and know for sure where they would be in the next deck. Um, you know, like maybe three quarters would get shuffled into a deck and a half. Um, and so you would know the composition of that. And that, that was like called non-random shuffling. That was a, you know, a, a big thing that, that I did and, and got, I think pretty good at. Um, and one of the things that like, because you do, when you do that, it, it helps the card counting piece of it because your betting patterns change a bunch. Like you might be able to cut good cards to yourself at the top of a shoe and then you would bet big at the top of a shoe, which you normally wouldn't do if you were just pure card counting.
0: That's a very good point there. Method of avoiding detection.
1: I mean, the, the one thing I think that I did that I would consider to be one of the shadier things that I ever did was like at the end of a shoe, if the shoe was really good and the cut card came out, meaning like they would, you know, normally be shuffling. I might actually like lean over the cut card, the yellow cut card so that they would forget that it came out during the round and would deal another hand because the count was good. Um, Ooh, and then I would, you know, if they were so like, hard. Oh wait, I thought the cut card came out. I'd be like, Oh yeah, here it is. Oh, sorry. Um, but yeah, I think I, I did that a few times. Uh,
0: and it works, huh?
1: It, oh yeah, for sure. It works. Cause they don't remember that. They don't remember the cut card came out, right? Like they're just, so they had a
0: lot to worry
1: about. Yeah, they they they're not going to necessarily remember that. So,
0: so where do you where Jeff? Like, I'm not talking legally right now, but just like ethically, ethically, where do you think the line is in terms of what is okay to do at a casino or to a casino in terms of advantage play and what isn't?
1: Um, where do I fit it? Where do where do I think that is? Um,
0: like like let's say you were at a Blackjack table that's dealt, you know, it's, let's say it's a double deck um, dealt face down, so you're not supposed to see anybody else's hand, and you have you have teammates there, so, you know, and have some way of signaling what your hand is to them. Would you consider that to be unethical?
1: Yeah, for sure. Like okay. you, you're saying, well, sorry, if, in blackjack or in poker? And blackjack, and like let's say they were somewhere across the table, and they were able to see the whole card,
0: no, I'm saying, well, actually, yeah, like let's say you could see the whole card and signal to somebody else
1: yeah, I don't know man i I definitely have a uh propensity to feel like i want to be aggressive um against the casinos and the casinos like any edge this is like the this is the phil ivy question right you know when yeah. phil ivy you know beat the casinos with his sort of like and if any of you guys haven't heard about this just google phil ivy and my name cuz i wrote an article about this um for espn chalk when i was when i was writing for espn Um, and I actually think it's like one of the best things I've ever written, which isn't saying very much, but it, it, it actually covers this, this topic, which is like, what is the line of ethicalness? Um, I think probably having someone stare at a whole card probably is unethical. Um, but I would probably do it (laughs) if it was available. Why would you say it's unethical? Because you're sort of violating the terms of the game that the casino has, and the casino doesn't really know that you're doing that like they have no idea that you're doing it, and you know you're you're basically preying on them in a way that 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 is somewhat unfair to them um yeah that's why it's just like it, it's the like the idea of like a, it's it's the idea of like a like the other day there was like a line that came out and it was like one team was a basketball team was down by like twenty points and the line came out that they were plus four um in the second half and I'm like, there's no way that's right. And and uh, you know, it we bet it and it turned out that the line was wrong. Like and they, they flipped it and obviously they no bet us. But um I don't I don't have any problem with them no betting us in that situation. Like I it was clearly a wrong line and it was a mistake and like I don't you know I think that's fine.
0: What if they had? You would have had a problem if they had no bet you after that, after the game was over. Yeah, no, I checked it. Won. I checked it as soon as and, the second half
1: started, and they'd already no bet us, so I wasn't, I wasn't upset about that.
0: But don't you think, in a way, like these casinos are are taking advantage of people? They're liquoring up people in some cases. I don't know if you read about the guy that lost two hundred million dollars in one year, and now Harris is suing him for. Or Caesar's is suing him for the 14 million he still owes, apparently. Um, And they just got this guy drunk and he just compulsively gambled, right? I mean, they are taking advantage of people. Um, You know, I I guess people are freely making these decisions, of course. But at the same time, like if a casino is sloppy about something, just, you know, if you're sloppy drunk, you don't get your money back. If a dealer is sloppy, you should, you, you don't have the right to take advantage of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. Like, I yes, but I'm just saying, like, I, you asked me, like, do I think it's unethical? And I was no. like, yeah, probably. Do, okay. would, would I do it? And I'm like, yeah, I probably would do it. So clearly, either my ethics are really screwed up, or or I I don't believe it's that unethical.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a big gray area myself. So okay, um, I want to want to wrap this up soon, but I do want to ask you about the Serena Williams story which is probably my favorite Jeff story it was um your first one of your first time speaking at a big event is that about right
1: no I'd, I'd spoken quite a bit in my life at that point and I was speaking at an event um the next day in Vegas and I you know again not everyone makes fun of me for name dropping but I was um I had gone to dinner, um, at a a restaurant in Vegas and had run into, um, a, a guy that I know pretty well, or that I knew pretty well at the time, um, an NFL player, um, named Steven Jackson. And, uh, he, um, like, you know, it was pretty cool to be hanging out with Steven Jackson at that time. And so I, he said, Hey, let's go out. And, and we, Steven Jackson at that time drank Don Julio in 1942 and he just drank it like straight up. Like there wasn't any like, Hey, we're going to do a couple shots. He was just drinking that. And so, uh, we ended up drinking that all night. Um, you know, and then my, my speech, I think the next day was, it was at like 10 30. So it wasn't like super early, but I remember I rolled in probably around seven or 8 AM and crashed for a couple hours uh in my room and then went and did my speech and obviously like when I did my speech I was still a little bit inebriated um and I did the speech and you know I um I thought I did a fine job but obviously in that condition I was also like maybe I'm not the best judge of whether I did a good job or not and after I got done the uh, one of the organizers came up to me and he was like oh my god we had we had serena williams on the main stage and i was like oh and he was like that's that was stupid we should have had you on the main stage you you're much better than serena williams and i was like wow that's that's pretty cool
0: were you like terrified when he came over to you at first were you like
1: you You know i I had enough presence of mind to know that like i hadn't done a terrible job like I, i i thought i had done a pretty good job so i wasn't i wasn't no i wasn't i wasn't that worried but like you know, when as he was talking to me, I was just like, hopefully, hopefully he's not smelling my breath or smelling what I smell <laughs> like or anything like that. So I was like, maybe trying not to get that close to him.
0: That's pretty good. So, wh- last question, Jeff. What I know was it John Starks that ordered the teenies?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, uh, no Jalen Rose that. ordered teenies and John Starks. John Starks was red Ordered hot. Merlot. Do, so,
0: can we get some, some drink recommendations from any other athletes?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I have a conference call on Monday with a, the with a famous athlete. I won't say who because at this point um, I probably shouldn't because like we're discussing some business type things. But uh, maybe I'll ask him what he drinks.
0: Good. We would love to hear it. Usually sure, usually
1: they drink like, you know, back in the day it was like A or Cavassier or... You know, those those things.
0: I don't even know what that is.
1: Yeah, that's the joke I always say. Like when I met Jalen Rose, I tried to order two two uh glasses of Cavassier and he was basically like, No dude, can you make me <laughs> make mine an apple teeny? So.
0: <laughs> okay, well, Jeff, uh it was it was a pleasure having you on as as a guest instead of a co host this time, although I feel like at the end it kind of devolved into us talking like normal, but You know, we will be, let's see, next week is the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston. So you will be joining me here, I guess, on Saturday. You'll be headlining a panel, and we will try to record a podcast from the Sloan Conference, our first podcast recorded together in the same physical location. So
1: That'll be delightful.
0: So you want to say goodbye to everybody?
1: goodbye everyone and if you're at Sloan come and say hi because it would be nice to meet one of our seven listeners
0: Exactly. <laughs> <Do you guys laughs> have system to break down the data, Media of off, none of it's organic it all sounds synthetic that's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and-